Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the matchless gift of your Son. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Once again, we just want to pray. You've said that you would give the Spirit to those who ask, um, that you are more willing to give good gifts to your children than a father is willing to. And so we just want to pray that you would send your Spirit to be here today. Um, even though it's Sabbath afternoon and we've eaten a good lunch, uh, keep us alert and awake and help us to gain a blessing from our time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today I want to take some time to sort of continue the topic we began this morning. Um, we remember that the reason that the gift of prophecy is needed is because sin caused separation between man and his God. In the beginning, it wasn't God's intention that there needed to be any type of, um, you know, special communication or a gift of communication. Everyone should be able to have face-to-face -face communication with God. That's how God designed us to be uh, in the beginning. But sin shattered and, and separated that relationship. Um, of course, it shatters and separates relationships between humanity, too, doesn't it? That's what sin does. And uh, the Bible says in Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have separated you from your God. And that's, that's why we have a need for communication um, between God and us. And your sins have hidden His face, face from you. I'm thankful that in spite of the fact that sin separates us from God, God is proactive in trying to find ways to still communicate with us. Aren't you glad for that? You know, He could be, he could be sort of folding His arms and, and saying, well, you come and talk to me if you want. But God is constantly seeking to restore that communication between Himself and His people. And God found a way, the way that He chooses to communicate is through men and women who have what we call the gift of prophecy, specifically. Um, the Bible records many conversations between the Lord and different Bible characters. Um, of course, it wasn't face-to-face -face communication, but it was still special messages that He gave to them. Sometimes God spoke through the Holy Spirit, sometimes by angels, and at times through people who cho chose to be His messengers. But the most frequently chosen channel that God used to communicate with His people has been the channel of prophets and prophetesses, uh, men and women who are speaking for the Holy Spirit on God's behalf. Amos 3 verse 7 tells us, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to who? To His servants, the prophets. That's right. And so God has chosen them as... Uh, tools, you might say, to reveal his messages and to reveal his secrets, according to Amos, the prophet Amos. Um, the Bible also says in uh, 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God had prophets, of course, even before the flood in Noah's day, because Jude 14 tells us, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. So Enoch is spoken of as a prophet in the Bible, isn't he? In fact, there's even reference to a book of Enoch, although that's not a part of our biblical canon. Um, and I don't know that we believe Enoch wrote it, but um, and nonetheless, 
Enoch is the first person mentioned in the Bible who had the gift of prophecy. Um, but there were others. Uh, Acts 3, verse 21, God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Noah, another prophet, foretold the destruction of the world by the flood 120 years before it came to pass. That's because he was given the gift of prophecy. He had a special communication with God. And after the flood, we find many prophets and prophetesses, uh, including Miriam and Deborah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and many others. They were teachers of righteousness. They gave moral and ethical instruction to God's people. They were spiritual guides speaking for God. And God revealed His message to them through visions and dreams. And um, this is one thing that uh, He talked to, well, God spoke specifically to Aaron. And uh, remember, there was some jealousy about Moses. And um, in Numbers chapter 12, um, the, uh, God said, If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. And in this passage, he's actually pointing out that that's, that's how he communicates to the prophets. But he said, Moses, my servant, isn't like this. I speak to him face to face. Moses had a, a relationship with God that he was even greater than a prophet. Um, but nonetheless, we use this as a definition of a prophet. A, prophet, a person who has the gift of prophecy, as we, as we would call it, or the prophetic gift, they are going to have um, visions and dreams. This is, this is one of the characteristics of a prophet. Sometimes God's messengers were instructed to speak for God. They gave their message verbally. Other times they were to write a record or, or record a message for Him. Um, in fact, the Bible that we hold today is actually the, the product of these prophets and the written records that they left, the written messages that they left. That doesn't mean if you didn't have a book written. I mean, there are many prophets who didn't have a book written. You remember Nathan the prophet who confronted David? There's no book. Um, even, even, even John the Baptist, Elijah. Elijah. Um, many others had no book that's a part of the Bible, but their message was nonetheless inspired. And every author uh, of the Bible is a part of God's plan. All spoke or wrote for him and were moved by his Holy Spirit. Uh, through them, God sent a love letter to his children on earth. In fact, I believe that inspiration and the gift of prophecy is God's way of saying, I love you. One of, one of the ways that he communicates his love for us is by giving us the gift of prophecy. He wants to keep in touch with us. And especially he wants us to know that he is looking forward to the time when he will no longer have to use prophets, when he will have face-to-face -face communion once again with us. Um, all of the authors of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, uh, Jude, and others, were part of that plan. All had the gift of prophecy. And of course, there were others during that same time who were still speaking with God, who we believe would have the gift of prophecy as well. Simon, Agabus, Barnabas, Anna. Um, in fact, uh, the Bible records that they, uh, they, they were not only men, but we have the four daughters of Philip which recorded in Acts 21, verse 9, these four daughters of Philip, um, which did prophesy, all were instruments God used to reveal His will and to encourage the early Christian church. Um, and the question we might ask is, what happened? You know, why do we, why do we see a, a, an interruption in this uh, plan of uh, prophesying and the gift of prophecy? What happened that such prophesying came to an end? The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, 
where there is no vision, the people what? People perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is here. You notice how these two parts, these two thoughts, are, are um, contrasted? In Hebrew poetry, you have, you have these, you have, you have either sort of like synonyms or antonyms. Sort of think of it. You, you would have, you'd have thoughts, phrases, that would be parallel phrases saying the same thing. And sometimes, on the other hand, they have phrases that are the opposite. And um, this is, if you look through Psalms and Proverbs, this is used very, very frequently. And here you see that going on. Um, you see, Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law happy is he. These are two, these are two opposed situations. Um, and so we could assume that one of the ways that prophecy and the vision would perish would be as we forget the law of God. As, as God's people stop to obey Him, they no longer will have the gift of prophecy. And in fact, um, the Bible would conclude that. We'll look at a couple of other verses as we go along. Now, not many generations passed until the church became careless, compromising, and unfaithful to God and to His law and to His Word. And um, just like Israel of old, when the church apostatizes, something happens. Jeremiah recorded it this way. The law is no more. You see that connection again with the law? And that's maybe not just the Ten Commandment law, but the reading of the Bible, the study of the Scriptures, the law of Moses, as you remember, the law and the prophets is the Old Testament, the law of the prophets and the Psalms. The law is no more, and our prophets no longer find visions from the Lord. This is in a time of apostasy. So you can see that it only makes sense, doesn't it, that if the church is not listening to the messages it already has, why would God send it additional messages? Does that make sense? Um, if you were writing someone letters and they didn't even bother opening the envelope, eventually you might just say, well, when you read what you got, then I'll send you some more, right? Um, and that's sort of the way God is. It's not that He doesn't want to communicate with us, but if we're not valuing and treasuring the prophetic gift that we already have, um, He's not going to be able to communicate with us further. Um, Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9. So as the early church adopted pagan rites and ceremonies and practices and discarded the fundamental truths of the Bible, of the teachings of God, the law of God, one by one the spiritual gifts were withheld from the church. And this is what history reveals. During the time of the ages, uh, the church's apostasy, sometimes we refer to it as the Dark Ages, um, the Bible and the gift of prophecy was so disregarded that it was it was hard to find a Bible. The Bibles that did exist would be chained to monastery walls where they couldn't be taken or read by anybody but a few of the monks who might have a passing interest in them. And um, the common people were forbidden to read or even to own the Scriptures. Only the priests were allowed to read the Bible, and the Bible was largely retained in the original languages, such as Greek and Hebrew or Latin, as the Latin Vulgate had been translated into, those, into that language. Um, a few faithful Christians remained true to the Bible and its truth despite persecution, and they actually shared, the, shared portions of the Scriptures that they possessed. Many of you have heard of the Waldenses. The Waldenses actually memorized portions of the Bible, and so when they went out as missionaries, they couldn't carry a Bible with them. They would, that would be certain death, but they could carry a Bible with them. 
that was stored in their memory. And um, often when they found someone that they thought they could trust at the risk of their life with some pearl of truth, they would just have a chance to write out those verses, maybe, you know, a short passage or a chapter maybe from one of the Gospels. And these were treasures that they were able to share with other people. They planted the seeds of the Reformation long before the Reformers ever came about. Um, when the Reformers came, Wycliffe, of course, first translated a Bible into English. Um, because of the politics of his day, Wycliffe, Wycliffe was able to survive. He died a natural death, but not too long afterwards, um, well, a couple hundred years later, um, when the spiritual and political fortunes of England had changed, they actually exhumed his body. They dug him up and they burnt his bones because he had largely because of his role in providing the Bible in the English language to the people. Um, pretty radical, isn't it? That's how strongly they felt about not having the Bible read by common people and having the, the, um, the church be the medium of salvation. Martin Luther's one of his great contributions also. He translated the Bible into German and, um, of course, Calvin into French. Um, but the Reformers translated the Bible into the common languages of the people, and um, the more it seemed like the church persecuted people for having the Bible, the more people wanted the Bible. And uh, the Reformation spread like wildfire through parts of Europe. As people began to diligently search the Scriptures, old truths that had been forgotten for centuries began to be discovered. Uh, they, these truths were bought, brought to the attention of the people, and a great religious awakening um, ensued. For example, the, the concept of salvation by faith, uh, by grace through faith. You remember the story of Martin Luther making his pilgrimage to Rome, as he thought he would do um, uh, every good believer should do, every good priest should do. He made his pilgrimage to Rome, and, and there he found himself on the Scala Santa, the, the Holy Steps. Um, it's, a, it's a staircase that's in a, in a small chapel across the street from the from the church of John the Lateran in Rome. And um, that staircase is supposed to be the very staircase that was in Pilate's judgment hall that Jesus walked up on the night of his betrayal and trial. And um, it was miraculously, of course it's stone, marble staircase, it was miraculously translated, transferred from Jerusalem to Rome, um, as I recall the story, by Constantine's mother, um, but at any rate, um, there's, a, there's a belief among those uh, in that church that those who climb the staircase on their knees, of course, they're saying the rosary and making prayers at each step, will have all of their sins forgiven. And there's even, uh, during the days of Lent, um, the, the plaque there next to the staircase still today says, if you do this during the days of Lent, it's, it's plenary indulgence. So it's, it's everything. And um, Martin Luther was there on those stairs. Um, it's one of the saddest places I've ever been in Rome to see these people still, crowds of them. So many that when one person has to move, they all have to move as they're kneeling on these steps. And there's, they've covered the stone steps with wood to protect them, you know. Um, but they wanted people to still be able to see the stains from the blood, supposedly the blood of Jesus, that are on the steps. 
And so they have little plexiglass windows. And um, everyone, when they get to those stairs, they kiss that window as they're saying their prayers. That's, this is what Martin Luther was doing. And there's so many, they have two staircases on either side of it. On other wall, uh, other side of a wall, they're, so the overflow for the people that can't fit on that staircase, the same forgiveness is offered if you'll go up the other stairs. And um, uh, Martin Luther was doing this when he was, a thought flashed through his mind, a scripture that he had read from one of those Bibles chained to the monastery wall. What was that verse that he remembered? The just shall live by faith. And so one by one, these truths began to be rediscovered. Salvation wasn't a, a function of the church. It was a function of faith of the sinner uh, in their Savior. And um, a great religious awakening resulted. Um, a, a few hundred years later, another great religious movement uh, from all denominations took place. Some of them were Baptists, some were Methodists, some were Presbyterians, and many other persuasions. They were searching the Scriptures and, and praying for light, and um, as they discovered things like the second coming, and they also discovered in this movement the uh, fourth commandment of God, the great memorial of His creation, the Sabbath commandment. They read the, read the book of Revelation, and they saw the description of God's people at the end of times. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And uh, as they continued to study, they were impressed that keeping the commandments of God involved keeping the Bible Sabbath. Now remember, what does it say would, what, would it, what was contrasted with, um, it says, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keeps the what? The law, happy is he. We looked at two passages which contrast or compare commandment keeping and the prophetic gift, right? And here as this, this movement for hundreds of years has been no movement, no large group of people who have kept the commandments of God, but the end time there's going to be a group keeping the commandments of God. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the book of Revelation tells us? Um, that's what we see. And as these, this group of people continued to study, they were impressed that keeping the commandments involved keeping the Sabbath. And they accepted this memorial to creation and proclaimed the Sabbath truth to the world. But what about the gift of prophecy? With the reinstatement of commandment keeping, would there be a renewal of the gift, the gift of prophecy? Would God raise up this special gift of prophecy among the end time Sabbath keeping people? Wouldn't it be reasonable to expect that He should? Um, notice what He said would happen in the last days. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall what? Shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So in the last days, we would expect that there should be the gift of prophecy in the church. Notice that this would take place just before the great and terrible day of the Lord, or just before the second coming of Jesus. God's people are to have the gift of prophecy in their midst at this closing hour of verse history. Communicating with the, with the church at Corinth, we read this morning, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was specifically, remember, talking about the testimony of Jesus or the gift of prophecy. Notice with me Revelation 12, verse 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ cardinal characteristics of God's people in the last days. They will have the faith of Jesus. They will keep all of God's commandments. 
they will have the gift of prophecy or the testimony of Jesus, as it's also called in the book of Revelation. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So, according to Revelation, the church that remains as God's channel of communication from Jesus in the last days is characterized as having his faith, keeping the commandments of God, and being blessed with the spirit of prophecy. I believe this simply tells us that God still cares about us, that God still wants to keep in touch, that He still wants to send us His love letter. He still has something to say to us, even in this generation. But you might ask, what about the possibility of deception? How can we tell the difference between a genuine prophet of God and a false prophet? Obviously, one of the signs of the last days in Matthew 24 is that there would be false prophets, right? But the good news is that Jesus warned us against false prophets. That means there's going to be true prophets. Because if he, as I said this morning, if Jesus knew there were to be no prophets in the last days, he would just say, beware of prophets. But he said, beware of false prophets, which gives us encouragement that there will be true prophets in the last days. So how can we tell the difference between a genuine prophet of God and what Jesus warned us against, a false prophet? The possibility of deception has always existed. Even in the Old Testament, there are false prophets, right? Uh, there's always been false and true ones. We don't have to be so concerned about studying the false ones, though. If we understand the characteristics of the true prophets, we'll be able to recognize the genuine gift. And God, the, the Bible gives specific characteristics that identify a true prophet. A true prophet's message will be in harmony with God's Word. You remember the Bible tells us uh, that to the law and to the testimony, Isaiah chapter 8, if they speak not according to this Word, it is because there is what? No light in them, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. So the first test is that they should be in harmony with God's Word. The second test is that a true prophet's predictions must come to pass or be fulfilled. Now, we do understand that there are conditional prophecies, right? Especially when it has to do with judgment against sin. If there's repentance, that will be changed, right? Nineveh. Nineveh was predicted to be overthrown because of their sins, right? Um, what was their response? They repented, right? And so no longer could they be overthrown because of their sins because they had repented of their sins. And so the, the, the fact that a prophet, some prophecies are conditional upon a spiritual response does not mean that we should not expect a prophet's writings or predictions to come to pass. Jeremiah 28 verse 9, when the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord has truly sent him. One of the reasons that God has given the gift of prophecy is to build up his church. And if we are to discover the true gift, we must discover the true church. They are linked together. Um, at the end of time. Remember Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 14, verse 3. But he that prophesies speaks unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that prophesies edifies the church. Um, verses 3 and 4 of that chapter. So, another characteristic of a true prophet. A true prophet will exalt Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of mankind. Notice with me 1 John 4 and verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. For because many false prophets have gone out or are gone out into the world. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And so 
we see that the false prophets must exalt Christ as the Son of God. Another thing, they must uh, bear good fruit. A true prophet or prophetess can be known by his or her life and works. By their fruits, you will recognize them or know them, the King James says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16. Verse 18, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Uh, based on these passages, it becomes obvious that not everyone who professes or claims to be a prophet of God is a true prophet. So what should we do? We should apply the tests, right? We should examine their lives, examine their writings, and see if they, have, if they agree with the Bible, if they, if they match or fit the tests. If they fit, we should thank God for the gift that He's given us. If they don't, then we should follow Christ's warning and watch out for them, be careful for them. Now, let me share you a story of how God chose to keep in touch with His people. It was during the Great Religious Awakening in the early 19th century. There was tremendous interest in Bible study and prayer, and the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation were particularly being studied with great interest. Faithful Bible students studied these prophecies and eventually came to the conclusion that Jesus would return in their day. We speak of this as the Millerite movement. As they continued to study, they settled on the date of October 22, 1844. However, October 22 came and went without Jesus' return. The glorious second coming did not take place. It was a, it was a most bitter disappointment. It, was, um, it provoked much ridicule and scorning, scoffing, misrepresentation. And later, as they continued to study, the group realized that while the prophecy had not failed, their understanding of it had, been not, had not been fully correct. They had thought that the sanctuary to be cleansed in Daniel 8.14 was this earth, but as they continued to study, they began to understand that it's the sanctuary in heaven that was to be cleansed. There was a final demonstration of God's character of love through His people that was to take place as the final, in the final movements of earth's history and the plan of salvation. And excitedly, the believers began to study the sanctuary message and uh, began to find more truths that had been forgotten for, for centuries. And it was at this crucial moment that God chose to reveal, to restore the gift of prophecy to His people. And it's, it's really an amazing story. My wife and I have been reading um, the biography series um, the last few weeks for our family worship. And it's, it's a fascinating story to, to, to hear the, the early part of of this movement and, and how the visions and the gift began to be given. God chose a frail 17-year-old girl and gave her a vision of the triumph of God's cause, of the truth. As Ellen Harmon was given her first vision in December of 1844, soon after the Great Disappointment, just about two, not even two months later. She was shown the Advent people traveling an elevated road to heaven, with a brilliant light from Jesus illuminating the pathway. And what was interesting was there was also a light behind. You see, the, you see the brilliant path. Of course, this is an artist's conception. You see Jesus lighting the pathway ahead. There was also a bright light behind. You know what that bright light was? It was the midnight cry. It was the message that the bridegroom comes. It was the, really the message of the Millerite movement. And um, at this point, many of the Millerites, or Adventists as they were called, were being discouraged, really. They thought the whole thing was wrong, and they were ashamed of the, of the movement. They were ashamed of their message. And this vision, in fact, 
Ellen did not want to tell the vision, largely because most of the people that she knew who were part of the Advent movement, had been a part of the Millerite movement, no longer believed that the, the message they had given was true. And so it was embarrassing for her. It was hard for her as a 17-year-old girl to come with a message that said, actually, the way you begin to think about this is wrong. In fact, that message is light shining behind us. Jesus is the light shining in front of us. But we shouldn't be ashamed of the message of 1844. Um, very interesting vision that she received. And this was such an encouragement to the small group of scattered Advent believers who would eventually later become known as the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, Ellen, White soon, or Ellen Harmon soon married James White, another young Bible student, and for more than 70 years she spoke and wrote and taught and counseled uh, for God. Um, although the scope of her ministry was, was quite astounding, what she claimed as her greatest work, as she put it, was to lead men and women to the greater light, the Bible. Her role, as she saw it, was to turn hearts back to the Word of God, to show people the Word of God. Um, she wrote in Callporter Ministry, for example, page 125, little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Um, she would have many dream, uh, visions in public, especially in the early years. If you look at the life of Ellen White, you'll notice that while she's had probably some somewhere between three and 4,000 visions, as I recall, the vast majority of the public visions were in the first few years of her ministry. And um, you might ask, well, why is that? Well, in the early years, there were obviously going to be skeptics and people that needed to see that this was a genuine manifestation. And um, so there were many, many times when she, in a large public gathering, would have visions, and people, often who were skeptical of her gift, would be present who would be there to try to see if it was actually true. The Bible records the qualities of a vision. Daniel, for example, when he was in vision, his breath left him. Okay? So when a person is in a vision, but giving, uh, receiving a message from God, his, their, his, the, they stop breathing. And you might say, well, that's not possible for someone to live for an hour, an hour and a half, two or three hours while in a vision without breathing. But... Um, Skeptic after skeptic were there, doctors included, who did everything they could in their day to try to make sure that she wasn't actually breathing. Some were actually allowed, James would allow them to come and examine her. She's on the floor. Sometimes she would have extra human strength, like this picture shows her holding a, a heavy Bible over her head for 45 minutes. And she would be holding this Bible over her head and, and without being able to see, because she was just a little five-foot, two-inch uh, young lady, uh, without being able to see over her head what she was, you know, she would turn the pages of the Bible to the passage that she was quoting, and she would even have her finger over, under, the, under the words as she quoted them. Passage after passage after passage. And so you can see here this picture. Someone's on a chair trying to see what, um, if, if she's actually reading the right verses or if she's misquoting it. There's someone else who is singing. You see the folks there on the side? They're trying to distract her, and they're singing really, really loud right in her ears, and she would keep right on talking, keep right on quoting exactly what the message ha uh, God gave her would be. Sometimes a prophet's strength is gone, 
and she would sometimes be laying on the floor receiving a vision, um, sometimes talking about what she saw, sometimes not. But the doctors would hold a mirror in front of her face to see if she was breathing. James even allowed one fellow who was a skeptic to both plug her nose and cover her mouth for an extended period of time. And there's only one thing that you could conclude, that these, this is supernatural. You know, it's got to be from one spirit or another, right? Um, this sort of baffles me today in those who reject the gift of prophecy. Um, I couldn't be halfway with believing this. Um, it's got to be either all or none. Either this is, uh, either this is of God or this is of the devil. And um, the whole movement would be as well. Um, to some who were criticizing the Word of God, she wrote, Cling to your Bible as it reads, and stop your criticism in regards to its validity, and obey the Word, and not one of you will be lost. Who is, she's pointing men and women to the Bible as God's Word. No woman author has ever written as prolifically as Ellen White. Her messages of counsel and reproof received from God were shared with His people through numerous books, magazine articles, tracts, pamphlets, and personal letters. Her writings include counsel on victorious Christian living, on diet and foods, on the home, on marriage, on drugs, on prenatal care, on child guidance and education, and the list could go on and on. Uh, many of her writings have been validated by modern scientific discoveries. She's been quoted by professors, doctors, news commentators, and others as an authority in many of these fields. In fact, some of you are familiar with the... With the um, documentary that was done a number of years ago now called, um, what was it called, Colin Campbell? Forks Over Knives, thank you. Um, Dr. Campbell is the author of the China Study, a well-known researcher, and um, he had a chance to read her book, Councils on Diets and Foods, and he said virtually everything in that has been validated by, by medical science. He said the question, I think he wrote this letter to Dr. Neil Nedley, the the question that he has is why isn't her why isn't this book receiving wider publication? Um, because he recognizes how far in advance of her time she was scientifically. Uh, Dr. Clive McKay says um, the writings of Ellen White have been cited because they provide a guide to nutrition that comprehends the whole body. In 1864, she wrote, "Tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind." Now, you have to understand, this was in a time when doctors were prescribing smoking for health ailments, for lung problems. Um, this was a time when this was not a well-known truth. In fact, uh, she says, it is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are so slow and scarcely perceivable. It wasn't until almost 100 years later, 1957, that the American Heart Association concluded, what do you know? that smoking was a causative factor in lung cancer. Can you believe it? 1957, not that long ago. Um, it was thought in her day that tobacco and cigar smoke were an effective cure for lung disease. Um, but we see that God gave her that information. In 1902, Ellen White warned that San Francisco and Oakland would be visited by the Lord because they were becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, do we find a repentance after that? Do they repent? No. And so we would expect that to take place, right? Um, it was, it was, I, I would argue this was a conditional prophecy, just like Nineveh was a conditional prophecy. But there were no conditions to be met. I mean, they, they did, there wasn't a repentance, a revival, a turning away from their sins. And um, in fact, 
On April 18, 1906, at 5.12 in the morning, the great San Francisco earthquake occurred, and the prophecy was true. The predicted, de predicted destruction did take place exactly as foretold. Um, Mrs. White's achievements are perhaps the most more astounding when we consider the overwhelming obstacles that she faced in her life and throughout her lifetime. Um, on November 26, 1827, she and a twin sister, Elizabeth, were born near the little village of Gorham, Maine, um, to Eunice and Robert Harmon. Har Robert Harmon was a hat maker. He wasn't a wealthy man, a hardworking man. He was a hardworking man, not a wealthy man. Uh, Ellen was the last of eight children, or Ellen and Elizabeth were anyway. Um, I don't think there's any record for sure of which one was born first of the twins. Um, so... At the age of nine, an accident changed her life forever as they were on their way home. An angry schoolmate um, threw a rock, and Ellen turned around just as the rock arrived, and it hit her in the face, disfiguring her and causing severe injury. In those days, of course, the ability to treat was limited. She was in a coma for a number of weeks, um, and was not thought, it was not thought that she would survive. Although she survived, she was not able to continue in school. When she tried to look at a paper, everything would just swim. Um, she couldn't hold her hand steady enough to write. Um, the girl that threw the rock tried to help her in her classes, reading to her, reading her lessons to her. Trying to, she was very, felt very bad for what had happened. But um, she, although she tried several times, she was never able to continue her education beyond the third grade. And her suffering led her to consider her spiritual life and she came to believe and have a personal faith in Jesus. And Ellen became an avid student of the Bible and was attending camp meetings and revival meetings, cottage meetings. Um, after attending a Methodist camp meeting in Buxton, Maine, Ellen White was baptized in the harbor there in Maine on June 26, 1842, and became a Methodist member of the Methodist Church. Later, Ellen and her family uh, attended some meetings by William Miller in Portland, Maine. And uh, William Miller was a former army captain who had been studying the scriptures and come to believe in the soon coming of Christ. Um, he was the founder of what became known as the Millerites. And the Harmon family was convinced of the truthfulness of Miller's messages. And because they accepted Miller's message and began to believe in the second coming of Jesus, they would actually be disfellowship dropped from the fellowship of the church, the Methodist church they belonged to. It was arranged so that they would be um, disfellowshiped quietly because the members of the Methodist Church had a very high regard for the Harmon family. And um, it turned out that when they were called to their meeting to be before the church, only a select few of the church had been called in, and the rest didn't really know what was going on, and they were voted out of, out of membership. However, after the great disappointment of October 22, um, Ellen was devastated. She wept and she prayed and she continued studying God's Word. And then it was that she was given that first vision of God's people. Physically, you might say it's not what you'd expect of a prophetess. How could she do the work that God would have her to do? She's 17 years old, frail, sickly, uneducated. Um, it's all the more glory to God, isn't it? when we see what God can do through even someone who is so um, weak. She tells it her, in her words, After I had had the vision and God gave me light, He bade me deliver it, but I shrank from it. I was young, and I thought they would not receive it from me. 
Although feeling inadequate and physically incapable of the responsibilities of this calling by God, in faith she accepted the mission that God gave her that would last her lifetime. Ellen and her husband James worked together in sharing the light that God gave, and uh, through their triumphs and devotions, um, which are shared in many of her writings, um, she lived a committed uh, life, committed to Christ, a tireless servant, and a devoted mother. Here she is with her, some of her family as she's near her death at the age of 87, seated there in the center. She was loved by her husband, her family, and thousands around the world. In 18, 1881, James White, her husband, died in Battle Creek. And standing by his graveside was Ellen pressing, pledging to press on the work that they had, continued, they had begun together. Some of Ellen White's most beautiful, inspiring writings appeared after this time. She worked alone for another 34 years. And um, it, her ministry took her to Australia, to Europe, to the United Kingdom, uh, guiding and counseling and instructing believers as she went. Um, she passed away on July 16, 1915, at the age of 87, and was buried in Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek next to her husband. A few weeks after her death, a newspaper carried this statement, the New York Independent. She showed no spiritual pride, and she sought no filthy lucre. She lived her, the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable of the American succession. And so even though her voice was stilled and her pen is at rest, the priceless words of counsel and admonition she wrote are still ours today. And I believe this is one of the manifestations and fulfillment of the prediction of Revelation, that God would in the last days have a group of people that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the gift of prophecy. And I believe that this will continue, these councils will continue to guide God's people to final victory. Same people ask me, well, could God send another prophet? And I would, I would have to say yes, um, he certainly could. There's nothing that says he can't. I don't know that he has to. I think that um, the bigger question for me is what am I doing with, what the, mess with the messages that he's already sent? Um, there's just such a vast treasury there that it seems we have a hard time even beginning to benefit from. Um, God has given us a tremendous gift, a very rich gift. Um, her legacy to the world is a gift of love, a message from, uh, to earth from across the universe, from a God of love who still wants to keep in touch with His children here until Christ comes. And uh, then the lesser light will pale in the presence of Jesus, who is the light of the world. Um, a number of years ago, in the vast desert wastes of South Africa, there lived a primitive bushman named Sukuba. Sukuba lived an isolated life as a member of a nomadic people. And one night, he crept into his shelter and prepared to sleep, and suddenly the night became brighter than day. A shining being appeared to Sukuba, and told him that he should find the people of the book. He must find the people who worship God. Sukuba wasn't sure what that meant. The, what book? How could he read it if he found it? Of course, he wasn't literate. The language of the bushmen contained clicks and guttural sounds that were quite unlike the language of other African tribes, and it had never been, it had never been written. It was never a written language. But this shining one, as Sukuba would describe him, 
who appeared to him said, the book talks, you will be able to read it. Sukuba traveled for days with his family in search of the book. He reached the hut of some Bantu tribesmen and asked if they knew of the people with the book. The farmers were startled to hear the bushmen somehow speaking in their own Bantu language. There you have a modern manifestation of the gift of tongues. He immediately took Sukuba to his pastor. The pastor was deeply moved by Sukuba's story. Your journey is over, the pastor told Sukuba. We have the book. But that night, the shining one appeared to Sukuba again. He said that these were not the people he must look for. He must find the Sabbath-keeping church and Pastor Moye. Pastor Moye would also have a book, would have a book and also four brown books that are really nine. The next day, Sukuba prayed for a sign. He needed some direction for his journey. And so when he did pray this prayer, a cloud appeared, and Sukuba set off after it and began to follow this cloud through the sky. He actually followed this cloud for several days. It, appeared over a, it disappeared over a certain village. And there Sukuba asked for a pastor, Moye and was quickly directed to his home. After Sakuba told his story in the local dialect, again, he had an ability to speak a language that he hadn't ever been able to speak before, Pastor Moye brought out his worn Bible. That's it, Sakuba said. That's it. But what about four books that are really nine? As it turns out, Years before, this, this story took place in the middle 20th century, but years before, Ellen White had written what we know as Testimonies to the Church, nine volumes. But for a number of years, there was an addition of the testimonies that were bound not in nine separate books, but in four volumes. I don't know if you've seen, some of you may have seen those. I've, I've seen copies of those. As it turns out, in one of those printings, nine volumes have been, been reduced into four. And which edition do you think Pastor Moya had? The common one that was nine different volumes or the one that only a few had been printed that had four volumes? Pastor Moya, in the middle of South Africa, had a four-volume set of the nine-volume testimonies. <laughs> and uh, Sakuba's search was over. He had found the people of the book. He had found a Sabbath-keeping people, a people blessed with the prophetic gift, and eventually he and his family were baptized, and he became a missionary to his own tribal people. See, I believe God is working in marvelous ways today, um, and I don't think that the fact that we have this message and we can understand these truths is any accident. God is guiding us, and he still wants to guide us today. And um, I think like Sukuba, we should be able to recognize God's truth when we see it. We should be able to say, this is it. This is it. And accept and receive the gift that God wants to give us. Wouldn't you like to have that experience? The Bible promises in Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 20, Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe His prophets and you shall prosper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us 
the gift of your spirit. We thank you for the, each of the prophetic, each of the spiritual gifts, but especially we thank you for the gift of prophecy. We thank you that when your people are faithful to you, that you, uh, you give them messages. Um, we remember that where there is no vision, the people perish, but happy is the one who keeps your law. And so we just want to pray that as we are living in these last days of earth's history, that we might indeed despise not prophesyings, but that we might test and prove all things and hold fast to that which is true. We thank you for predicting that in the last days you would restore the gift of prophecy to your church, to your people, and that there would be a commandment-keeping people who have the testimony of Jesus. We thank you that this is a biblical message. This isn't something from outside the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches us. And help us to accept the teachings of the Bible and be thankful for the lesser light that you've sent to point us to the greater light. We look forward to the day when you'll come in the clouds of glory and we no longer need to hear the messages of prophets and prophetesses, but that we can speak to you face to face. We look forward to that day in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.